The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshari Rod. Well, another Dragon Con is in the books, which means a new class of Dragon Award winners has been announced. We at Bain want to congratulate all of the winners, but we'd like to give a special shout out to the home team who took home a trophy. Longtime Bain cover artist Kurt Miller won for his work on Larry Correa's Tower of Silence, and Timothy Zahn was the winner of the best science fiction novel for The Icarus Plot. To celebrate, let's take a listen to our interview with him about the novel, which is out now in hardcover, mass market paperback, and all your favorite ebook formats. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Josh Hayes. Welcome to the interview portion of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Uh, this week, I have the honor and privilege of talking with Timothy Zahn, the author of the upcoming Icarus Plot, um, which is it's kind of a, a second book in a series, but also they can be read out of order or they're more uh, connected tangentially than anything. And uh, um, you can read book two and then go back and read book one or you can read them in order. And I think any any way you read them, you'll probably pick different things out. I, I, I got a lot of cool Easter eggs by reading them in order through the second book that I was like, aha, this is neat. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to uh, Timothy today. And thank you for uh, taking the time out to, to hang out with us this morning. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so the Icarus plot is the, the second book, like I mentioned, and uh, the first book, The Icarus Hunt, uh, focuses on uh, Jordan McKay. Uh, um, wow, I was just gonna Mikhail. I was gonna say Mikhail, and I was like, no, Mikhail. it's, it's Mikhail. Um and his crew. It's kind of a ragtag crew, um, as a whole bunch of other people are 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 hunting them down. And um, uh, we learn some things about them through that book, and then we get to this book, and this book focuses on uh, Gregory Rourke and Celine and um not so much as a big crew this time they're they're a, an operating pair um but then as the the story progresses you know we add characters into the mix um but i wanted to to start out our conversation just kind of talking about you know um the the general inspiration that you had for the series as a whole and then kind of like what you enjoy doing about the series because it's kind of um it's similar in some aspects to what you what you what you write, but it's it's more um, uh, uh, niche in that. Box, perhaps. It, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's more of a what's going to happen more than a than a an action packed like you know uh, battles and all this stuff. It's it's very kind of hmm uh, interesting a mental challenge to figure out what's going on. Yeah, more of a, a mystery uh, thriller is probably not the right word, but a mystery puzzle box. Um, who is doing what? Who is what size everybody on? Um, what's going on? All that sort of thing that hopefully will become very clear by the end. Right. Uh, with a few surprises along the way. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, we talked that that the the two protagonists in in the books are different. 
what was your thought process there? And then um, when you went to create the the new character of Gregory, what were you what were you wanting to do that would make this book stand out differently than the first book? But Jordan's a really interesting character. Um, and you learn a lot about him as you go through the book. And same thing here with Jordan, too. By the way, I love the um, my father used to say bits through the entire <laughs> book. I, I kept waiting for the penny to drop and like his dad would come out and say, I never said that. I kept waiting for that to happen. Uh, um, uh, so what, what was your inspiration for, for Gregory and then also Celine, too, because Celine is really interesting. When I first, I've been looking for a new plot for this universe for about 20 years and finally got one, uh, pitched the proposal to my agent, and he said that 20 years later, it's going to be hard for people to jump back into this saga, but he suggested others of his clients with this uh, same situation would set it in the same universe, but with new protagonists. So I decided to go that route. Uh, Gregory was going to be, uh, he's a, used to be a bounty hunter, so he's got those skills. But after a, a bad accident that you read about in the book, uh, he and his and Celine became Crockett's instead. Uh, the trailblazers, they go. I love that term. Uh, search. Yeah, they search. Um, unknown or un, unexplored planets uh, send bioprobes in to see what kind of uh, little bit of biology, whether it's worth uh, someone buying the planet and uh, developing it. So uh, they've gone to with this much simpler, much safer sort of uh, endeavor. Uh, Celine was a, I wanted her to just, the, the unique ability the Cadolian people have this incredible sense of smell uh, can pick out somebody's scent after they've touched something days ago and thought that would be an, a unique sort of thing and also drive the plot because that ability is what uh, the other people in the book uh, need and so this is why they hire them only things are not quite what they seem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then fold in some of the original characters from the book where it made sense to do that. And um, just just went from there. Uh, it just as a side note, uh, my son did the uh, copy editing of this. And when he had finished reading, he said to me that uh, he really wanted to meet uh, Gregory's dad someday. <laughs> <laughs> I had not ever thought of having, you know, as my father used to say, is kind of one of his catchphrases. It's similar to the old Banachek, uh, old Polish proverbs sort of thing, which he would then make up out of whole cloth. Right, um, exactly. And so I figure book four or five, I'm going to have to bring his dad in. Oh, for sure. I like the, I, I, I thought it was really cool that the quotes were like memorable quotes. Like you're like, okay, I know what that is, but mm -hmm. they weren't quite right. There was always something that was just a little incorrect in the, from the traditional uh, quote, you know what I mean? Like he wasn't remembering yes, it exactly correctly. And there are a few that are just basically tongue in cheek or sarcastic or, right. uh, you know, um, there's one I think in the book I'm working on, as my father used to say, don't shoot first, shoot only. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, well, uh, things of that sort. Uh, you mentioned uh, yep. Celine and, and her unique abilities. And um, what I really enjoyed about those abilities is, um, you know, sometimes with, especially with sci-fi books, but sometimes with fantasy, but a lot of times with sci-fi, you give aliens some really cool abilities or you give the characters some cool abilities and they're cool to watch. They're cool to see happen, but they don't sometimes, a lot of times really affect the plot or affect what the other characters are doing around them. And, you know, Celine and Gregory kind of get underestimated in a lot of situations where her abilities um, really people don't take them like they understand what they are, but they don't take them into account the way they should. And I like uh, the way that you use them consistently through the book. And then even having, um, the um jerry character know that but then like he knows it but he doesn't say it and he uses it against him and uh yeah um when you're when you're going through these stories or especially with this i mean you know you have the star wars stuff you have all those things where people know about that but i think developing these new things and and adding them into the plot is that something you're you're wanting to to develop these new things to add to the story? And it was that those abilities, did they come before you started writing the story or did they come like just as you were developing it? Uh, pretty much I had the idea of her being able to 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 do this uh, scent tracing and such. Uh, and of course, that then developed went how the plot uh, developed uh, in my mind. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right that people can know something and not factor it into their their thinking, their planning. It just it takes a while to reset your brain that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently started playing upwards with people. I'm a Scrabble player. Yeah. But uh, game night upwards, where you can add a letter on top of another one. I know the rule, but my brain is not trained yet to look at a word and see if I add, change this letter and this letter, I can make a new word. It's something that I I know the rule, but I don't think it yet. Exactly. I think that's a lot of what, uh, what's in this book that the the antagonists understand what she can do, but it doesn't factor into their planning as much as it should. Right. Um, the one of the things that I really liked about the the first book and and enjoyed about the second book are the are the kind of uh, twists and double twists and um, you know characters uh, conning everyone is not the right thing that's happened but but everybody seems to have their own little con game that they're running on everybody else and. Um, it's interesting after reading the first book and then kind of not when I went into the first book, I really didn't know what to expect. And so reading it and then having all that stuff happen, I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And then going into the second book, I was like, Oh, I'm looking for it this time. Cause I want to see if I can see it. Um, and it was interesting. Sometimes I was like, is that it? Is that, and then it turns out it wasn't. And then this other things that I, you know, you'd see, um, 
the ferrets, for instance, in different places. And you're like, I think I know what that is. But then you're like, I'm surely that's not the, you know, Ixel is not the only alien that's around in the area. So it's, it, it was really cool to see not overdone either, but just these little parts where th- the characters are seeing something and maybe they don't truly understand what they're seeing, but that's as the reader, you're like, Oh, I think I know what's happening here. Yeah. And you don't want to do the same plot twist with each book. Uh, Right. So this one has, doesn't have that same kicker at the end, but it does have enough little twists and turns and reveals that, um, it should be satisfying without, again, going over the same territory. Sure. Uh, is that something that you consciously wanted to do with these books just to kind of keep people on their toes? Because it's, I think you could very easily have done just a straightforward plot, but this kind of bounces back on itself. And there's a lot of other variables that are get put into, which, which kind of kind of make it flip-flop on itself a couple of times before the realization happens for the reader and also for the characters themselves. Yeah, I mean, that was the flavor of the first book of yeah. what's going on. Oh, I understand. Oh, wait, no, I guess I don't. And bring it all, tying it all together at the end. I, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, a straightforward plot. What's the fun of that? Right. So uh, right. Yeah, this is this this is that this is that style of book. I tend to put a little bit of puzzle box into I think every every book I do just because it's fun and the readers seem to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, this is this type of Ic- Ic- the original Icarus hunt was that kind, as you say. And I want all of the ones in the series to be that way as well. Different um, plot twist, uh, different what is going on and is it correct or is it is it uh is there another layer underneath here i need to know about well and also i think it's interesting that you know we keep kind of comparing the the two books but from from book one you kind of you experience the if you want to call it a con or you want to call it the this side of the plot you experience it one way and then you see it a different way in book two, um, kind of from the other side. Um, and it was interesting seeing it play out. The the ideas play out from different perspectives and then the understandings of like you're thinking, OK, it's one thing. The character's thinking another thing. And then you get to the end and both of you are wrong. Um, but also yeah. the, you know, there's, there's several misinterpretations from, uh, the, uh, uh, Gregory's point of view too, throughout the whole book. There's, there's some, some yeah. things that from his perspective are true and, um, those, you know, affect his decision-making and affect uh, uh, other things and, and seeing those wrapped together and even kind of looking at those in the light from book one are very interesting aspects of his character. Yeah. I mean, Gregory is not nearly as adept at this sort of thing as Jordan McHell was in the first book. And that, that shows he comes to, he jumps to conclusions that may or may not be right. Uh, acts on them. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he isn't. 
uh, a lot of times he is kind of scrambling to uh, react to situations. He's good at that, but he is he is not driving things as much as uh, he would like to, certainly. Yes, like he's um, he's he's reacting, and those reactions um, are not as educated or fruitful sometimes as Jordan's might have been. And I, I thought that the the making it so the first one was like you know the big chase between you know, over planets and through space and all that stuff, and this one kind of starts out like that i mean not not uh in a grandiose scale but you kind of seeing it head in that direction and then it it takes another direction and uh i wasn't seeing that i did not see that coming which is good you know that's that's always uh, an uh what you're striving for through the story but i enjoyed the other direct like i enjoyed the direction that you took this book rather than just doing another kind of interstellar chase um and and layering yeah, I mean, on you, you, yeah the the reason i it took me 20 years to come up with anything more was i didn't want to do the same book again that's kind of a waste of effort for everybody yeah so i needed something that was different and this is the one that finally popped into my head um the the nask character um it was an interesting uh, villain to have because in many ways he wasn't like your mustache twirling villain, um, but he was very uh, determined and the things that he said were, the words of them were extremely not extremely violent in and of the words, but you could tell that the intent was behind them was vicious and malicious. And he would have done it if certain things might have happened or would happen. Um, but he was also very chill, <laughs> if that's the right word to use. Like he was, he was not uh, using loud intimidation like that, but he, he was very subtle. And I really enjoy that about um, villains, where they're they're not yelling and screaming and and you know just going you know crazy, but they're very calm and collected and subtle. And those I think are kind of the the scariest villains that you can read in the book. When you developed his character, what what was the the thought process in that? He was a character in the first book. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted, I needed one of the paths in in this one, and he was the logical person. Uh, he'll be a continuing character through the series, and yeah, he's not a he, he's a villain to the, the our protagonist, but he is firmly convinced what he is doing is the best for his own people. Right. Uh, and he's you know, from that point of view, he's got a job to do. He is going to do it. And he is a, a good manipulator and planner of his own. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time, the, the best villains and heroes are the ones who are doing things correct from what they know, but they don't have a, a, a complete 
picture of what's going on. Yes. And that, that, that fits NASC and also um, uh, Gregory and Celine as well. They don't know everything that's going on. Uh, and, and that is how the real world operates, the fog of war and all of that. We don't, everybody, not everybody has all the pieces. Well, and and I like that it the because you show a lot of in both books you show a lot of kind of slice of life type events that happen and and you know you show you know landing at different spaceports or even you know different restaurants or bars or tavernos or whatever and and um, for us and for the characters of the first book that those events were big they were important but for everybody else they weren't and so it was interesting to see like the events of the first book were maybe world changing for the characters but nobody else in the universe knows what's happening nobody else cares what's you know who jordan is and it it it's it was interesting to see that those interactions that happen on a base level and i um without coloring them with you know because there's things that happen in our world that you know stuff happens in my neighborhood over i have no idea about and i and and it's it's always nice when you read a book where everything is not like everyone isn't like oh yeah that guy i know that guy or i know what happened there because that's not realistic in my opinion yeah and 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 one of the worst offenses is where everybody knows who this is because he's the hero of this story Exactly. Uh, no, that that's not. Um, there was one of the Star Trek movies where they foil an assassination, burst in on assassins, and they are applauded. Well, no, we don't know who these guys, any of these guys are, except mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's our heroes. I liked in Casino Royale that when Bond foils the airplane uh, destruction, he is slapped onto the ground and cuffed. Yeah, we cuff everybody till we sort out what's going on. Right. And that's that's the real world. I don't know what's going on, so I'm going to, you know, calm this down, arrest everybody in sight, and we will then figure it out. Yes. So, uh, yeah, the, the characters, the rest of the people in the in the universe do not know who these characters are necessarily. Well, and that leads to some interesting events that happen in the book where he like he is being uh confused for being jordan and um and that you know and and like you said you meet these other characters from the book and and you're like okay i I think i know where this is going and then it it turns around and you're like okay well maybe i was wrong and that forces you like look you're kind of looking at from the shade of understanding who you think the character is but then you're like well he's messing with my emotions here i'm not sure if this is correct or not uh, yeah, but it, it was the idea is to keep the reader guessing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was nice to see that that uh, there was uh, a lot of confusion and, like you say, fog of war that really leads the events, and it forces uh, it forces him to make decisions that may or may not be. Uh, the best for him in that situation. It's good to see characters make mistakes. And I liked that he wasn't as adept as Jordan and that the setting was uh, completely different than just the 
kind of claustrophobic confines that you had on the Icarus in the first book. Um, and uh, it was just a very uh, interesting new take on the universe. And, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how the, the universe and the, the, the story behind everything grows in the, in the next books. And, and you mentioned book four. So I assume that, that book three is, 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 in the works or is is somewhere down the line we can expect the next book to come out i mean this book isn't even out yet so i kind of got you know i'm 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 in the uh the privileged seats of of reading it so um yeah. uh you mentioned book oh, four book, but where book, do you see the series going after this uh book three is at bain waiting for a decision i'm halfway through book four I know what the end of the series will be. Uh, I've got an outline for that. So it's just as many new ideas and you don't want to beat the dead horse, but yeah. if I can continue to come up with interesting stories that will develop not just the universe, but also Gregory and Celine's place in the whole thing. Uh, I will continue to write them because they are a lot of fun to write. I like yeah. the the uh, the setting. I like the characters. Um, I'm continually looking for places to put in, as my father used to say, um, <laughs> and coming up with new ones of those. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I would like to do at least six books in the series. So the way the, the way I'm thinking we need to do it perhaps is once the third or second or third book of this series is out or third or fourth that we cast this as the Icarus saga and the Icarus hunt is the prequel to it. Oh, right. Uh, since these others will follow the same, the same characters of Gregor, uh, Gregory and Celine. Yeah. But that's, that's just nomenclature. Right. Um, well, uh, Timothy, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast today and, and talking uh, about the Icarus plot. Um, it is scheduled, it looks like, to come out July 5th, and I think that this interview will air right after that. So I think it'll this interview will be on the air on the 8th of July, so just right after that book releases. Um, but I'm excited to see where the series goes. I was excited to to read it. And thank you very much for, for talking with me this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad you enjoyed the books. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss.
clothes found, and Maynard carefully shooed off, she got up to change. Under the cotton gown, she was naked. She put on her panties and bra without taking off the gown, eyeing the door, which had no lock. Luckily, no one burst in to catch her dressing. She pulled on her carpenter's pants, and then in one quick motion, pulled off the gown and slipped into her team shirt. With her back to the door, she took her time buttoning it up. The hospice had cleaned her clothes, managing to get all of Winwolf's blood off of her carpenter's pants and to find a replacement for the bottom button of her team shirt. It had gone missing weeks ago, and she'd been at a loss as to how to replace it. Cleaning clothes she could do. Repairing was something she could only do to machines. She stepped into her steel-toed boots, sealed them, and clonked about the room, feeling more able to take on Maynard. The contents of her pockets sat elegantly arranged in an elegant rosewood box. Elves stunned her sometimes. Most humans probably would have gone through her pockets and tossed most of her treasures. The hospice staff, however, had not only cleaned all the old grease-coated nuts and bolts, but had properly mated them together and then arranged them by size on green velvet. They looked like bits of silver jewelry. Her spare handmade power lead, extremely crude-looking but actually poly-coated gold, had been coiled and tied off with a strand of blue silk. They'd even kept the interesting-looking twig she'd pocketed the day before shutdown, which now seemed weeks ago, instead of two days. It pleased her. She would have been unable to rebuild three separate projects without the various bolts, but still it weirded her out. When one was immortal, apparently... One had time to waste on other people's little details of life. She pocketed her eclectic collection and went out into the hall to find Maynard waiting. He led the way out to the sun-blasted parking lot, towering over her. The flatbed was gone. Oil can must have driven it back to the yard. Looking at the empty parking space where the tow truck had sat made her feel horribly alone and vulnerable. Stripped of her powerful toys and standing beside Maynard, she felt all of her five feet nothing. Nathan was as tall as Maynard, but he was a friend, so she never felt particularly small around him. Maynard was EIA. Her grandfather had viewed all forms of government with deep suspicion, which she, of course, had inherited in some part. After her grandfather had died, and she had been left an orphan in a town that exiled stray human children, the EIA had grown to boogeyman proportions. I have nothing to fear from the EIA now. She and Oil Can had coasted a year, staying low until Oil Can hit 18. At that time, he could stand as head of household, and they were legal again, barely. There was the little matter that they were living in separate houses by that time. Last month, though, she had finally turned 18 herself. Maynard traveled in style, a big black armored limo rolled up to the curb, stopping so that the back passenger door could swing open without hitting them, and not an inch farther away. Maynard indicated that she was to slide into the air-conditioned comfort first. Parents? Maynard asked, after they pulled out of the hospice's parking lot. I am eighteen, a legal adult. She tried dodging around the whole parent thing. Gods knew it was far too complex to go into. I'm also a legal citizen. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. I'm sole owner of Pittsburgh Scrap and Salvage, 
I did a quarter million dollars in business last year, and all my taxes are paid. Your cousin works for you? Yeah. Any other family? She tried to bluff him off. Should I save us both the effort and just dump a whole family history on you? Like I said, I like to know who I'm working with. She considered him and decided that meant yes. She made a note not to bluff with Maynard again. My grandfather had two kids, my father, Leonardo, and Oil Can's mom, and Ada. That's all the family that I know of. Oil Can? Maynard lifted one eyebrow. Surely that's not his real name. Apparently the loss of their ID cards had slowed down the EIA network. No, it isn't. Aunt Ada was married to a man named John Wright. Oil Can's real name is Orville John Wright. I'm sure it was Grandpa's idea. He had a thing about inventors. Orville Wright. Maynard proved he had some sense of humor and smiled. I can see why he goes by Oil Can. How did you and Orville end up here in Pittsburgh? You're too young to immigrate. Grandpa immigrated during the first year. I was born here. Oil Can came to live with us when I was six. What about your parents, both yours and Orville's? Both my dad and Aunt Ada were murdered. I'm sorry. Maynard thought for a moment and then cocked his head. Not here in Pittsburgh, or I would have known about it. My father was killed in Oakland before the first startup. John Wright was a man with a temper. He killed Aunt Ada in Boston. I stayed with Lane when Grandpa went to Boston to get oil can. I've never been on Earth. Maynard looked at her for several minutes through narrowed eyes. Your father was killed. What, ten years before you were born? So one couldn't slip things easily past this man. Yes, my grandfather never got over my father's death. Grandpa used cryogenically stored sperm to have my ovum inseminated in vitro ten years after my father died. But your mother is still alive? Technically, no. Tinker sighed. So much for trying to avoid complexity. My birth mother wasn't the donor of the egg that my grandfather had inseminated. He also used a cryogenically stored egg. My real mother was also dead before I was born. Maynard stared at her for several minutes before asking, Did your parents, your real parents, even know one another? I don't think so. Your parents, who had never met, were dead when you were conceived? Yeah. Doesn't that bother you? Mr. Maynard, if we're going to work together, can we just stick to scientific facts and not go jaunting off through history and psychology? Maynard exhaled what might have been a laugh. You hold your own. Tinker wasn't sure what he meant by that. Sick of the whole inquisition, she forced the conversation off onto another track. So what the hell do you want me to do? Someone smuggled a large shipment of illegal goods in during shutdown. Lucky for us, though, they were involved in a multiple vehicle accident on the Veterans Bridge. Their vehicle was disabled, and they panicked in spectacular fashion, which makes us worried about what all they might have brought into Pittsburgh. You didn't catch them? No, Maynard said. They unloaded their truck, sorted through the shipment, and carried away what they deemed most important. The driver had been pinned by the accident. They shot him, so we couldn't question him. Ouch. That earned her a dark look from Maynard. So far, it doesn't sound like a panic. 
Well, throw in a carjacking, assault on the other accident victims, picking up and throwing a Volkswagen Beetle over the side of the bridge in a fit of rage, engaging in a gunfight with police, and trying to blow up with C4 what they couldn't carry away, and you start to get the idea. Tinker gasped. Nathan, were any of the police hurt? Maynard looked surprised at the question. Luckily, no. Not for the want of trying, though. And how do I fit in? I was in McKee's Rocks fighting wargs when that accident happened. How do you know when it happened? My friend Nathan Chernowski is a cop. He was with me at the scrapyard when the call came in. I'm assuming that there was only one multiple vehicle pileup and fistfight on the Veterans Bridge. Yes, Maynard relaxed slightly, apparently accepting her alibi. Well, you'll be interested to know that the description of the smugglers match that of your attackers at the rim. Tinker swore. Smuggle in contraband one night? Attack Windwolf the next? Very busy people, Maynard said. It denotes a large organization, of which these men are merely disposable muscle. So far, EIA has been able to keep such crime rings out of Pittsburgh. I want to pull this one up by its roots. Sounds like a plan. What does this have to do with me? Some of the load wasn't contraband just extremely expensive high-tech parts. The question is, what could they be used to make? Oh, I see. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks again to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Congrats to Kurt Miller, Timothy Zahn, and all the Dragon Award winners, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.